Chapter 18 of the Shunja is called Correct Judgments, but you could also interpret this or translate it as correcting judgments or correcting understanding. Because the way that this chapter works is that Shunja is going to criticize different misunderstandings and he's going to explain why they are wrong and explain what is the correct understanding. And that's why you can understand this as correct, correcting judgments. If, uh, so for what we're going to do is we're going to talk about what this incorrect belief is. We're going to talk about what that is in modern terms. Uh, in other words, how do, how would people phrase it today? And then what we're going to do is we're going to examine why Shunzo thinks is incorrect and how, what the correct understanding actually is. So we'll go through these four steps with each of these. The first misunderstanding is the idea that a ruler, the leader, should be manipulative, secretive, deceptive, and that sort of realm of activity. And so Shunzo says, no, this is not correct because the superior needs to set the tone. So in terms of today, what this could mean is the kind of leadership or governing where everything is done in secret, everything is, is done uh, without transparency, and there's plenty of that going on, especially if you live in one of these nations that are, in fact, massive empires, like China, like America. You have plenty of that. Another way in which we find this kind of attitude is this belief that when you vote for somebody to become, say, president, and um, there's this belief that you can choose somebody who is going to go out there and what they'll do is flatter the people, not say what they are truly going to do, and not say what they truly do believe. But once they become elected with that power, they're going to do what is actually right. Now, there's a number of problems wrong with this, including the limited uh, years of term. But specifically here, the problem with such rulers or leaders, whether they are elected or not, is that the superior sets the tone for the rest of society. If he is secretive and clandestine, then his subordinates will be hesitant and unclear. If he is unpredictable and dangerous, they will be sly and deceptive. If he is biased and twisted, then they will be cliquish and closed. And then, because of that, you'll have more dysfunctions, because this one leader is only one person. And that is what uh, a lot of these kings and, and emperors in Confucian societies, that's their personal pronoun, this one man, uh, is to remind themselves that they're just one person. They need other people to follow them for them to exercise any real power. So, you know, people were saying this about Trump and people were saying, always say this about any of their favorite, you know, the people that they vote for, you know, that, oh, this, this guy isn't really like this. He's just messing around in order to get people to vote for him or uh, whatever it is. But ultimately, it works very badly because you need a ruler who is virtuous both on the surface and inside. 
So if the ways of the ruler are clear, then the subordinates will feel secure. If the ways of the ruler are unpredictable, then the subordinates will feel endangered. Uh, but if they feel secure, then they will value their superior. But if they do feel endangered instead, they will despise him. If he is easy to know, they will have affection for him, and so forth, and so forth here. So if you are able to make clear your bright virtue, then it will be radiantly bright below, meaning all the subordinates will follow through. Thus, the former kings made things clear. How could it be that they worked only to make them unclear? So you have to make clear your virtue. You have to make clear what is right, what is wrong. And you have to do this from beginning to end. If you do not do this, people will not be loyal to you. They will not trust in you. And you will set a bad example for people. Let's go to the second misunderstanding here. This belief is that Jie and Zhou possess the whole world. Tang and Wu usurped and snatched it away. What does this mean in modern day terms? It's this belief that you have to, uh, these people, in order to set up a good dynasty or a good country, they have to overthrow um, the current leadership or they have to throw a revolution or they have to conquer um, people. And to Shunzo, this is not so. Why is this? Because when you become the ruler of a people, the people come to you. You don't go and grab the people. So, in today's terms, it would be like the idea that you would have to grab this kind of, uh, grab this kind of power for yourself in order to set things correctly. But that is an incorrect perspective. That's an incorrect understanding of what really happened. This is a little bit of a subtle point. So I'm going to read some of these uh, lines here that will help you understand this. Uh, he says, it is not the case that Tang and Wu snatched away the world. They cultivated their ways. They carried out what was e, just and right for them. And they established benefits for the whole world and eliminated harms to the whole world. And so the whole world went over to them. It is not the case that Jie and Zhou abandoned the world. They went against the virtue of Tang and Wu and disrupted social divisions came, that came from ritual and e. Their beastly conduct accumulated in them what was ruinous and made complete within them what was bad, and so the world abandoned them. When the world goes over to a person, he is called king, and when the world abandons a person, he is called perished. It is important to understand that there's a difference between somebody who has power using the state and somebody who actually is the leader of people through their virtue. And that is the one who deserves the name king, the other people can be likened to tyrants. And so on line 150, Shunzi says, stealing can get one a state, but it cannot get one the world. Why is this? Shunzi says, the state is a lesser instrument. What does that mean, that the state is a lesser in instrument? It means that the state 
the government is not the people and the land. The state is a way of organizing and controlling the people and exploiting and, and protecting the territory, but it is not itself the whole world or the society. So a petty man can possess the state. A petty man can steal or get the state. It can be maintained by petty strength, in other words, physical or military strength. The world is a greater instrument that cannot be possessed by a petty man. It cannot be gotten by petty ways. It cannot be maintained by petty strength. So only a sage can possess it. In other words, the whole society, the body of human beings, whether we're talking about literally the whole world or simply the whole country, that is something that only a sage can possess because only the sage has virtue in order to draw society towards them. If there is a violent state out there that remains depraved, then the sagely king is able to punish it. That's line 80. In doing so, he is sure not to harm the innocent common people. So that's very important. This is the difference between the world coming to you and you using the state and therefore the military to take over the world. So let's look at some examples. If you look at um, if you look at Japan around the World War II era, they proclaimed to want to protect East Asia, but how do they go about it? They went over, used deception and force to take over many different countries, many different territories. And so the common people of those places were harmed, and ultimately their own common people, the Japanese people, were harmed. Shunzu says, and punishing the lord of the violent state is as easy as punishing a lone individual. We don't get further details here in this chapter, although there is some details in chapter 15, um, or at least the similar idea is put out, uh, but there's not all too much detail. Um, essentially what happens is that the common people want to be with you and they will neglect or abandon or even turn against that tyrant that leads them. So if you have great virtue and your virtue, news of your virtue reaches these other people, then they're not going to want to side by the people who oppress them. And, the, and so it's not only Japan around World War II as an example of this, you can think about um, what goes on today. Is it that, say, these global hegemons, what they do, is it that they are simply setting up themselves as an example and people are naturally following it? Or do we see these people actually invade these territories and then try to take over? Or do we see that these global hegemons use money to basically bribe people of other countries to follow their ways? And that's something that happened very frequently during the Cold War. So yes, certain battlegrounds like Korea and Vietnam, there were eventually actual military struggles. But in other countries, what you have is a lot of money 
being funneled so that they turn to democracy and capitalism or they turn to communism. So that's what's going on with this part in line 80. You have these three ultimates in the uh, paragraph starting at 112. And these three ultimates is ultimate strength, uh, ultimate ability in making distinctions, and ultimate brilliance. Ultimate brilliance leads to harmony. That's your virtue. Um, the ability to make distinctions is to put people of worth and ability up at higher positions and uh, treat as base those who are base. And uh, base simply means, you know, bottom level. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It just means, you know, like the basic model. It doesn't mean it doesn't work. The basic model does work. It's just not as fancy or capable as higher models. Um, and then ultimate strength is not really clear what uh, Shunzo means, but this could mean uh, there's two ways to interpret this personal strength or um, somebody who has um, strong military forces. I believe I believe both uh, interpretations can weigh in here. Um, Shunzo is not naive. He's not going to pretend that somebody of perfect virtue, if he's just a commoner, is going to become king uh, in every situation. He's not naive enough to believe that. On the other hand, uh, he's not somebody who overemphasizes on military strength, especially since that strength needs to come from loyalty and that loyalty is earned through virtue. So ultimate strength uh, might mean something that's not does does not have a very clear uh, analogy to today. It might mean something like virtuous power or or something along those lines. All right. So for modern application, many of these countries try to use force to get people to follow them or to take over territory, and that's the wrong way of going about things it the way to go about that is to have great virtue set a great example do well within your own country however big or small that is and then let people come to you wishing to follow your ways or wishing to become part of you next misunderstanding this idea of what punishment is so there's a few misunderstandings that are um, mixed up in this, but what Shenzhou uh, characterizes this as is the vulgar purveyors of doctrine. And the vulgar purveyors of doctrine, uh, what, did that, what does that mean? A purveyor is somebody who sells it, and vulgar means he is crude, uh, not refined. Uh, and so this is, these are people who misunderstand ultimately, and they're selling their teachings. Uh, so the vulgar purveyors of doctrine say in the orderly ancient times there were no corporal punishments and instead there were symbolic punishments and, and there's some other uh, misunderstandings here. So Shunta is going to correct the understanding of what punishments are and this of course is a very modern subject. 
what's the point of law and punishment? Is it to rehabilitate bad people? Is it to enact vengeance upon people who have harmed others on the victim's behalf? There's a lot of confusion about what the role of punishments are. So let's see what Shunza has to say. When the offense is most weighty, but the punishment is most slight, then ordinary people will not know to treat it as bad. Nothing is chaotic, more chaotic than that. The basis for all cases of punishing people is, one, putting a halt to those who are violent. So in other words, this is the deterrence rationale. You're trying to deter people from doing bad things. Treating as bad who are bad. Let me explain that one. That's the second one. Treating as bad who are bad. You do that because you need to send the message to other people that what this person is doing is th that bad. And people will actually start to believe it. People will even start to believe it when you punish somebody too much. They'll actually start to believe that really that is a bad thing. And then lastly, to warn those who have not yet acted. So this is a preventative measure. Back then, a lot of people were executed through capital punishment. And so when we get to the first reason, putting a halt to those who are violent, by putting them to death, you don't get more of those crimes repeated by those persons. So, we know from earlier chapters that Shunzu is against raging against a crime. In other words, going overboard with the punishment. The punishment is always there with an eye towards goodness. Okay, so does that mean that there is no such thing as punishment for its own sake? No wrecking vengeance? Shunzu seems to be somewhat quiet on this matter. So I don't want to speak for Shunzu with regards to this matter, to the, with regards to that question. So let's go on and read a little bit uh, more about uh, Shunzu's explanation as to why the uh, punishment needs to fit the, uh, the, the extent of the crime and the reward also needs to match the extent of the virtue. One, line 186, if even a single matter missed out on its proper matching response, that was the start of chaos. If virtue was not matched up to position, if ability was not matched up to office, if rewards did not correspond to meritorious accomplishments, if penalties did not correspond to offenses, nothing was more inauspicious than that. Again, it is because you reward and you give power to certain individuals because that is what's good for society. If virtue needs to be matched up to position because you want people of high rank to role model for others, ability needs to match up to office because those in office make decisions, so they have to be smart and talented. And rewards need to match up to meritorious accomplishments. Few things are more destructive than having a system where these 
certain people, they do very petty things and they get the highest status in a society. People become billionaires by simply producing candy or uh, even worse by creating a way of shopping online that puts all these small local businesses out of work. And yes, I'm, a, I'm familiar with the broken window fallacy of economics, which states that you know, broken windows are not good things, even though somebody gets work out of it because there's a net loss to society. The window has been broken. That's a loss, not a gain. I am aware of this, but this works only to a certain reasonable extent. The problem with a lot of ec economists is that they take these ideas and then they overblow them. And so they don't think in terms of nuance or in terms of reasonable extent. And so you have a situation like you do now where an economist says, oh, businessmen are good because they provide, they help uh, society become more productive. But then you end up with very extreme situations like the situation with billionaires, while most people struggle to make it by. And that's an example of taking these ideas to too much of an extreme. So for the sake of order, for the sake of making the society more virtuous, you have rewards, punishments, and positions lined up in accordance with how good or bad people are. And if even a single matter misses out on its proper matching response, whether punishment or reward, this is the beginnings of chaos. Yes, there is a limit to how exact government can be, but there needs to be some, again, reasonable measures taken that we should applaud virtuous persons and make them known. And then we should also criticize unvirtuous persons, persons who act perversely. And we should make these things clear. Okay, the next argument here is this belief that the sage kings, Tang and Wu, were not able to enforce their prohibitions and commands. In other words, their governments lost control over their subordinates, over their people. And this is probably the, uh, this is probably the matter that um, least concerns us today because governments exercise a huge amount, a, hu a great degree of control over their people today due to technology and due to people's naivety that they are not being oppressed when in fact they are essentially slaves. We've talked about that before, you know, slave, if you're in debt, uh, you know, you're coerced into labor and there's all sorts of other things um, that we've talked about in which uh, governments are controlling their people very, uh, very closely and into detail. So this doesn't really concern us, but let's talk about this anyway. Uh, Shunza says that the manner in which a true king establishes regulations is that he first observes the conditions and then he establishes regulations for implements. He weighs up distances and then sets gradations and tributes. So he observes conditions and then he establishes regulations. In other words, he does things appropriately and timely. 
so that people do have respect for him and the laws that he sets up. If you don't do this well, people are going to rebel, refuse. Um, and you basically saw that with the whole COVID thing. If you, uh, what's this part about weighing up distances and setting gradations and tributes? Tributes are what are owed to the leader. And so the closer you are, the more tribute is owed. And the further away you are, the less tribute is owed. And sometimes it can be purely symbolic. Tributes are not simply one way, by the way. Tributes, the way they work is that even the leader gives something back. And oftentimes the leader does give more to the people in the, in the lower positions. So that is often how it works. So we see a few paragraphs uh, talking about that into detail. But why does it why does it matter that you have to set gradations? One, if they're further away, um, I mean, on a practical basis, you have less control over them back then. But uh, furthermore, if they're further away, they're not like you. They're, they're not naturally loyal to you. And you don't really understand their conditions so much. So they have to be more independent. And so it's not morally right for you to take more from them. Uh, not only that, it's not only a distance thing. Some some lands are less fertile than others, and so you have to measure the fertility of those, and so that is a kind of progressive taxation system that they used, uh, where you're looking at, okay, there's only so much food that can grow on this kind of land. We can only take so much. It's very parallel to this guy can only make so much money this year, we'll only take a certain amount from him. So graduated taxes, uh, or progressive taxation does make sense, but it also needs to be implemented well. Uh, if you're letting some people um, get a free, uh, free, free ride, uh, and um, if they do try to look for work, it actually makes them worse off to to get a job, to get off of welfare. That's called a welfare trap. You want to avoid that kind of situation. And of course, you know uh, many other kinds of. Uh, problems can come up if you do not properly implement progressive taxation. So this goes back to this idea of um, being careful about establishing these regulations. Now we've got this next idea, which is pretty interesting. Uh, the misunderstanding is that Yao and Shun relinquished the throne and yielded to others. In other words, when a sage king, a great king is there, he abdicates the throne and then assigns it to somebody else, usually their descendant. And Shunzi surprisingly says this is not so, and this sounds very counterintuitive. Um, essentially, what he says is that uh, if you are the son of heaven, whether this is referring to the emperor or a monarch, You are that because you are greatly virtuous. And you can't hand over virtue to somebody else. So there's one son of heaven, and when he can be replaced by another virtuous person, but he cannot give over the world to that person. He can give over the throne, in other words, the state, the lesser instrument, but he cannot give over the society. The virtuous person has to earn the trust and the loyalty 
of the people of the society on his own. So again, the government, the state is the instrument, but you have to actually live up to it. Similar to if you're a business and you're advertising, the advertising is the instrument for which people can start paying attention to, but you still need to deliver a good product. So as for the son of heaven, his power and position are supremely revered and there's no rival to him in the whole world. To whom could he yield the throne? Because the throne represents the seat of the son of heaven. But the government, okay, the throne in that sense, the government, that can be given. Uh, that's why in line 278, it says, when the sage king has died, if there is no sage in, left in the world, then there is simply no one adequate to have the world relinquished to him. And then there are some other kind of situations. For example, if there is a sage and he's among the king's descendants, then the world does not desert him, the court does not change location, and so forth. Um, and there's another line, one, one Yao, that's like the original sage king, one Yao succeeds another, so what switch is there? In other words, there's a sage king and then there's another sage king. Some say uh, when a king is old, they relinquish the throne. That's line 296. And Shunzu says, this is not so. Again, this is subtle. What he says, in the case of one's blood, chi, and the strength in one's tendons, there is decline. But in the case of one's wisdom, deliberation, and choices of what to accept or not reject, or to reject, there is no decline. In other words, these are virtuous persons and um, that the virtue does not wane. Your physical strength might wane but and your beauty might wane, but your virtue does not wane. There's this little uh, footnote here that says, you know, basically says back then uh, people didn't grow to be so old, so they didn't become senile. Uh, however, the nature of senility appears to be that of a disease, a mental disease, uh, not all purely mental disease, but brain damage. And sometimes in very rare occasions, uh, it could be something like Huntington's disease, where it's genetic. But outside of that, if a person's originally healthy and their brain declines like this, I believe this has to do a lot with pollution. Uh, so when the problem with pollution is like it gets into your body and therefore it has a possibility of getting to your brain. Once it gets into your brain, it can cause some chemical damage. So back then there wasn't really pollution. Today there is. And so uh, the problem of senility might simply be a modern phenomenon, not simply because you're getting old, but because your brain, your, bo your body and brain have absorbed a lot of poison, a lot of uh, chemically disruptive things that interfere with your brain's proper function. But what is uh, Shunzi's response overall here? He says, for the son of heaven, his life is very pleasant and convenient, and he has the utmost power and his body has the utmost ease. He has, his heart has the utmost happiness and nowhere does his intentions suffer being turned back. In other words, he doesn't decline in his lofty intentions, his high, high-minded goals. Um, so 
why is this important is because when your life is so pleasant, you can preserve your health, you can preserve your energy late into old age. And so in line 336, Susan says, for holding off old age and fortifying against decline, is there anything better than this? Those who do not suffer from old age are well rested. And for resting, is there anything comfortable, enjoyable, and pleasing and happy as this? As this? this is also interesting to, um, if you think about how this applies to your family, uh, women who uh, stay at home and don't stress out at work, uh, they look younger than women who have a career. Uh, some of this has to do with the correlation between that and drinking alcohol. So women who drink alcohol, they do damage their skin. Uh, but a lot of it is, you know, stress does age people. And that's just a common fact, uh, whether you are a uh, man or a woman. So, um, the, you know, having an easy life is something that will preserve the strength of the king and the energy of the king. And he could better do his job and provide for that stability for society. And so Shunza says in 341, there is such a thing as relinquishing a state, but there's no such thing as relinquishing the world. Again, there's that state versus world differentiation. In other words, government versus society. So even though government has a great power over society, the society itself cannot be directly given. All right. And so if we're thinking about how this applies to the modern day, when you see that these leaders are elected, by a hair's breadth. In other words, barely over 50% of people voted for them. Um, and in other systems, you know, um, uh, it might be a little more complicated than that if you're looking at uh, the Electoral College, you know, it gets a little more complicated. But for simplicity's sake, let's say, you know, most of these guys just win by a small margin. They won the office but they didn't win the people. Even when it's something like 60% supported them, there's two problems with that. One, what about the rest of the people? 40% is still a lot. Furthermore, we're just talking about between the last two candidates. And what if, like in most elections, people don't really like either of them? And not to mention, if half of only half of the people are voting, then only 30% of people voted for that guy. So they have the office, but they don't have the people. All right. Uh, next argument here. Yao and Shun were not, again, those are the sage kings. Yao and Shun were not able to educate and transform the people. And then... And as evidence, these people say, Zhu and Xiang were not transformed. Who are these people? Zhu is Yao's son. And then Xiang is Shun's brother. So Zhu, Yao's son, is self-indulgent. And Xiang is Shun's half-brother. And he was a wicked person who plotted to kill him with Shun's father. Shun in the Confucian world is a poster, um, I guess a poster boy for the uh, 
for some for the kind of person that has a bad family. So uh, I know many of you have at least one family member that you have a big problem with. Shun was simply surrounded. So um, his father did not like him and his half-brother did not like, like him. And it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that his um, stepmother um, also did not like him very much, as uh, is a frequent case with step-parents, and that's very famous, you know, Cinderella. Um, the story in there bases itself off of that common finding. So uh, you can be very virtuous, even though you come from a family that is petty or even wicked. Now, according to the story, Shun is able to transform his father to some degree, but has much less success with his half-brother, Shang. So these are exceptions. What does Shunzu say here? He essentially says, in every generation, there are twisted men. And it's not that Yao and Shun were not able to transform the people as a whole, they were. But there is such a thing as free will. And so, this is not a failing of Yao and Shun to transform Zhu and Shang, but rather it is the fault of Zhu and Shang, because they have their free will. So the way that society works overall is not the way that every single person in that society works. So you cannot say, oh, there's these two examples of people, and they also happen to be family members. They're very close to these people, and they weren't transformed. So I guess these people as leaders could not transform the society. That's not true. And so we have this little uh, analogy here, Yi and Pong men were the best at the world at archery, but even they could not use a warped bow and crooked arrows to hit targets. One, Wang Liang and Zhao Fu were the best in the world at driving, but even they could not use lame horses and a broken chariot to cover great distances rapidly. So Yao and Shun were the best at the world at educating and transforming people, but even these two could not make such twisted and paltry men become transformed. So you cannot point at somebody and say, oh, their family members are wicked. Yeah. Or, and you cannot point at somebody's students and say, look, there's this one person, he did such an awful thing. The teacher must not be good. You can't say these things because people do have their own individual free will. Now, in terms of transforming people, you can get the crime to decrease and you can make people overall better. And so the culture, uh, the society, I mean, becomes better. So let's look into this. Whenever people engage in robbery, they surely do it for the sake of possessing things. So this is, uh, this is in the context of talking about uh, grave robbers. Now, one 
response to this is that oh they shouldn't have stored so much wealth they shouldn't have stored jewelry in these coffins or built these tombs now Shenzhou has something interesting to say he says when people engage in robbery they must surely do this for the sake of possessing things and this doesn't happen uh, things like grave robbery does not happen under Sage King. Why? There's two reasons. The Sage King makes sure that the common people are amply supplied and well off. So they're not lacking for things. They're not insufficient. A major reason, of course, why people commit crimes of all sorts is because they cannot make enough money through normal legal ways. So if the economy goes down, then the crime rises. And that, of course, is responsibility of good government. Number two, people's customs will achieve a fine state under good governing because the culture improves. And Shenzhou says, when people's customs achieve a fine state, men and women will on their own avoid taking up with each other on the roads. Okay? Obviously, that refers to one night stands. So that kind of thing isn't new. That kind of thing was practiced in the Roman times. That kind of thing was practiced in Shunzi's time. It's not new. It's a breakdown of society. So don't think that some sociologists are naive enough to think that we've somehow advanced, quote unquote, progressed beyond marriage. Like that's an antiquated thing of the past. It's old timey. It's out of fashion. That's not true. People have done this sort of thing in chaotic times. And it's a human ill omen. And then, according to Shunzi, if people's customs achieve a fine state, the common folk will be ashamed to take items that have been lost. In other words, they know it doesn't belong to them, and they don't want to just take it. Thus, Confucius said, when the world acquires a way, will robbers not be the first to change? Because you can make an honest living and you will have shame for taking what is not yours. Because the world is orderly and people can achieve their desires and become happy. They can become happy through ways that are orderly and sensible. There's this paragraph, line 423, that uh, is really worth looking at. And it really summarizes um, Shunzi's emphasis on why the proper model and hierarchy is important. It is only with the chaotic present age that things are the opposite of this. Superiors employ people according to no proper model and their subordinates behave according to no proper measure. Those who are intelligent do not get to take part in government deliberations. Those are, who are capable do not get to bring about order. And those who are worthy do not get to be employed by the ruler. When things are like this, then one loses out on, one, on heaven's one's um, on heaven's nature below one loses out on earth's benefits 
and the middle loses harmony among mankind. So you need to have people in the right positions. You need to have the right model. Only then can you use Earth's abundancy to satisfy the desires that you have from heaven, from birth, desires that you cannot get rid of. And that's how, among human beings, you can find and achieve harmony. But in the chaotic age, it's the opposite. And so, since it continues, the hunter tasks become neglected, wealth and supply shrink, and disasters and chaos arise. Above, the leaders, kings and dukes, are troubled by deficiencies. Below, the common folk freeze and starve and waste away. The, the wealthy in this society, society back then especially, they're troubled by deficient species, not because currently they don't have much, but because they're worried that it could all be taken away from them. So even these guys whose wealth is primarily tied up in the stock market with billions and billions of dollars, that can be wiped out in a bad year. And they are already greedy and petty, so they could constantly contend over these things, and they're constantly working hard to grasp and hold on to this wealth. Below the common folk freeze, oh, and of course, uh, the actual political leaders, they're even less stable because everybody knows that these guys are responsible for problems. Okay, below the common folk freeze and starve and waste away. That's easy to understand how that happens. Um, if you're at, if you've made it to this chapter, we've talked about that into depth. All right, there's two more arguments here. They both come from Songzi, and uh, this is. Zhe is the suffix for master, and uh, Shunzi, of course, is, is not, does not believe this person is you know, truly a master, but he is called such, and so he is um, you know, still written as Songzi. There's this interesting argument. Uh, there's this belief Uh, that making cl it clear that being insulted is not disgraceful will cause people not to engage in brawling. People all take being insulted as disgraceful, and so they engage in brawling. If they understand that being insulted is not disgraceful, they will not engage in brawling. So, for example, if somebody is swearing at you, that's insulting you, that's insulting behavior, and uh, this Songzhu says, <clears throat> If you tell people that this is not disgraceful, they won't get into fights over this kind of thing. And then Shunzi says, uh, he has this kind of um, subtle argument here, uh, or you have to pay attention to it in detail. So he says, whenever people engage in brawling, one must take their hatred for something as explanation, and not the belief that it is disgraceful as a reason. Okay. In other words, it actually causes you to be angry. It's not because somebody's told you it's disgraceful. It actually makes you angry. So if somebody swears to you, swears against you, you don't even like this person, but they uh, you know, curse at you, you still feel angry. Even if nobody's around to see it, you still feel angry. Because it's something that you 
you hate, not because you're taught that it's disgraceful. So there's this whole argument about this, and it really sets up uh, for the next mistake that Song Tzu says, being insulted is not objectively disgraceful. And it's kind of interesting because uh, Shunza is really taking him to task here. The first thing he says is not, this is not true. The first thing he says is disciplinary. He says, whatever one is debating, one must first establish a lofty standard of correctness, and then only one, then may one proceed. Without a lofty standard of correctness, right and wrong will not be divided up, and disputations and litigations will not be resolved. In other words, you can't just go into debate and try to prove a point without having a, what would uh, be called uh, by uh, in Aristotelian logic, a general premise relating to morality. In other words, you have to talk about large truths before you start to talk about something more specific than that. So, this is where he starts to establish that lofty standard of correctness. He says that there is honor in terms of what, of what is E and honor in terms of one's circumstances, and these do not always coincide. So it's possible for a virtuous person to suffer disgrace in terms of his circumstances, but it's not possible for him to dis suffer disgrace in terms of what is righteous. Because the Junza, the, the virtuous person, is a righteous person. He is not disgraced internally, but he can be disgraced externally. If he is poor, if he is in an impoverished situation, then he is dis suffering disgrace in terms of the circumstances, but if he is a righteous person, he is not suffering disgrace and dishonor in, what, in terms of what is E. On the other hand, petty people, they can have honor in terms of circumstances. They can have wealth, they can have status. But they have no honor in terms of what is E, righteous. They are disgraceful when it comes to morality. Only a gentleman, and this in this case it doesn't mean a virtuous person, it means literally a nobleman, will have honor uh, in terms of what is both E and in terms of circumstances. So a gentleman meaning you have both the status and the virtue. Only that person can have honor in terms of circumstances and what is E. So that is how honor and disgrace are divided up. Okay. Oh, and last one last thing that Songzhu says People's inborn disposition is that they desire little, but they all believe that their inborn disposition is to desire much. This is a mistake. So this is, again, probably uh, relatable to um, an idea that if you cut down on advertising, people will not have desires. I don't think that's completely true. I think advertising can intensify people's desires, but uh, they can't create desires. It would be hard 
difficult to create desires where it didn't already somewhat exist. Um, but anyways, Shunja doesn't address that exactly. What he does say is, clearly, people are born with many desires. They, they don't want, you don't have to teach them to have more than a handful of desires. They have many desires. He says, don't people opt, don't people's eyes desire the utmost in sights? Don't their ears desire the utmost in sound? Don't people's palates desire the utmost in flavors, etc.? So he says, no, this is not true. And then Songzu says, people's inborn disposition is to, um, excuse me, I, he's, he's, he continues, uh, Shunzu continues on and says, it's actually not a bad thing, or rather, you can make use of the fact that people have many desires, because the leaders can reward people with wealth and abundance and penalize people with cuts and losses. So knowing that people have many desires, you can make use of that to govern by rewarding them by satis uh, with satisfaction of desi their desires. In other words, everybody enjoys status, so you give status to people who are virtuous. People enjoy perhaps fine furs, so you can give people fine furs for uh, succeeding in doing the right thing or succeeding in helping out society. Okay, so those are some arguments that Songzu says, and of course there are modern equivalents of these things. Uh, If you teach people, simply say no, don't fight or don't do drugs, that's not enough. You have to look at why they are doing these things. And then from there, you want to correct society. So if people are fighting, you want to make sure people are not being rude to each other. You want to have a culture that encourages proper etiquette. If you have a society where people are doing drugs, you don't want to have a society a culture where people are unhappy, upset, depressed, and therefore they turn to these things. Um, one thing that we always confuse is, oh, if you're so smart, then why aren't you rich? You know, if you're so good, why didn't you succeed, etc. They might not put that in such direct ways, but they do feel this way. You know, they look down on people who don't make that much money. They start to treat people as special if they have a fancy car. But virtue does not mean that you will necessarily have wealth and status. And wealth and status does not mean this person is virtuous. And it's important to keep that in mind. And finally, it's important to understand that a big tool of government is to reward people is to reward people. So it's not enough to simply punish wrongdoers, it's important to give rewards to good people who are doing good things. Crime, you want to understand where it comes from. It comes from desperation and it comes from shamelessness. And so if you fix your economy, they'll have enough. 
if you fix your culture, then they will have a sense of shame. And if your people, your leaders are virtuous, they will set a proper role model for others. And so I'm, this chapter goes through a number of these uh, misunderstandings and Shunza is correcting them. The, the next few chapters are on ritual, on music, on human nature. Uh, we have this undoing fixation um, where Shunza talks about the overall Tao and points out where people get caught up on just one aspect of the truth and then we get correct naming. So these chapters are amazing. Uh, these chapters really get to some uniquely Confucian insights about morality, about human flourishing. So still the best is yet to come, even though so far you may have been thinking, oh, I've read about this somewhere else. Uh, some other philosopher has talked about this, or this just simply seems like common sense. I could have figured it out on your own. The best is yet to come and you will be learning something new and great. So until then, um, you can continue, continue reading uh, these chapters, and then we'll start on the next one about ritual.